0: Get the recording going. There we go. All right, uh, let's open and pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come together uh, to study your word here in this church. And Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together and that your word would be spoken in truth and that you would work through it and that you would change us in the way that you want to do. In your holy and precious name, we pray. Amen. All right, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Colossians. We are continuing our series, and today our text is going to be verses 9 through 12 of chapter 2. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, and I'll read that for us here as we get started. Colossians 2, verses 9 through 12, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity Well, i got to say, uh, just as we're getting started here, that in all of my time teaching, not just here, but in other places, in other churches, teaching through scripture and so on, in all my time teaching, I have um, scarcely found a passage harder to teach on than this one, to <laughs> be honest with you. As I was studying and preparing this session this week, I found this passage very, um, very, very deep. Uh, there is a lot of stuff going on here more than in any other passage that we've looked at in Colossians so far, and uh, it's deep because not only is there so much theology packed so tightly into these verses but there's also so much Old Testament theology that we need to have you know within our minds as we're thinking through this passage in order to understand what Paul is teaching and what he's talking about here okay so we've got to we've got to know so much about the old testament the the big picture of the Old Testament. And we've got to know so much about New Testament sacramentology, or New Testament doctrine of the sacraments, in order to really get the full picture of what Paul is dealing with here. And that's what makes it difficult, because it's so much stuff that I sort of need to figure out how to boil all down into, you know, something that's edible for this morning, all right? So as we get started here, basically I've got a three-point Sunday school lesson, all right? First of all, we're going to do an introduction with verses 9 and 10. Secondly, we're going to talk about circumcision and what that was in the Old Testament, as Paul here is talking about circumcision. And then we see Paul make a connection between circumcision and baptism. And so we'll talk about baptism then too, as Paul is describing it here in these verses. And then also see what he talks about baptism as in other parts of Scripture. Okay, So firstly, let's take a look um, at verse 9 and 10, where Paul is... Uh, Where I'm entitling this is basically his introduction to talking about baptism, right? For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And if you remember the context of what we were talking about last week and the weeks before, we're in the section of dealing with the knowledge of Christ, his person, and work. And here Paul, unambiguously and very clearly, sets forth the teaching that we all believe and confess that Jesus is both truly God... And truly man right? in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. that is we can say rightly here as Paul does that Jesus is fully divine that is that he possesses all the attributes that are necessary of being God so we can rightly call him God and he does this in such a way that he is still bodily a person right? he's still a human being in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then Paul makes a connection of that sort of, not necessarily abstract, but that sort of claim about who Jesus is, and then makes a connection of that to us. And he says, verse 10, And you have been filled in him. Now he's talking to believers here. Remember, he's talking to the church in Colossae, and he says, We have been filled in Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. And what he means by that is simply because Jesus is the fullness of God, because Jesus is fully God, he is truly God, he is the one who fills us. That is, we cannot have anything outside of Him. Right? We find everything we can possibly ever need in Him, and that's because, as we talked about earlier in in chapter one, Jesus holds all things together. Right? He's the Logos. He's the center of reality. He's the one that gives everything its meaning and purpose and consistency. And so, because of that, we can be filled. We can be filled in Him. He is the only one. That will give us genuine knowledge. He's the foundation of wisdom and knowledge, as we talked about last week. In him we have been filled. And he's the head of all rule and authority, meaning he's the sovereign over all creation. And then Paul, here we move into point number two here. Paul moves into a treatment of something else. He's almost changing subjects here, but not really. And what he does here in verse 11 is he says, In Christ also. That is, in addition to being filled in him, in addition to finding all of your meaning in him and all of your purpose in him and all of your knowledge in him, in addition to this, you were circumcised in Christ. Now, that's a little bit weird, you know, if we heard that for the first time today. That'd be kind of weird for us to hear, but it'd be even more weird for Paul's recipients in his day to hear him say something like that, right? because The Colossians, remember, that was a Greek town. Colossae was a Greek town, a Gentile town, a Gentile community. Uh, There were not very many Jews there, if any Jews at all. And Gentiles in this day, especially the Greeks, they didn't practice circumcision. Uh, The Jews did because it was a religious ceremony that has its roots in the Old Testament, which we'll look at in a little bit. But the Gentiles didn't really practice it for the most part. And so Paul here sort of comes out and he says, hey, by the way, in Christ you were circumcised. And they're like, whoa, what are you talking about? <coughs> We've never been circumcised. That's not a thing for us. And Paul says, no, seriously, in Christ you were circumcised. In addition to having all of your purpose fulfilled in Jesus, you're filled in him, guess what, you were also circumcised. But then he sort of clarifies what he means by that. and He's like, no, you weren't circumcised physically, as in literally like the Jews, Okay, you weren't circumcised physically, but you were circumcised in Christ with a circumcision made without hands. Made without hands. So this is a spiritual circumcision that Paul's referring to here. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Christ in baptism. Now, even just a cursory reading of this passage shows that Paul is making an intimate connection here between circumcision and baptism. He's making an intimate connection between circumcision and baptism. And as I said before, in order to get the thrust of what Paul is doing here, in terms of this connection, we need to take a little bit of an excursus into the Old Testament and see what is circumcision. Circumcision. What role does it play in redemptive history and see then how that impacts our understanding of baptism and, and why Paul is putting them together here, why he's comparing them and saying that they're spiritually circumcised by being baptized and what's this circumcision of Christ thing that's going on, okay? So moving to point number two here, circumcision, if you haven't learned this already, but I'm sure a lot of you know this already, circumcision is what's called the sign of the old covenant, Okay. Circumcision is a sign of a covenant. And so, if we're going to say circumcision is a sign of a covenant, we need to know what in the world a covenant is. We're going to understand the sign. Now, a covenant, I'm sure you've learned this before, too. So you Reformed people, as a Presbyterian church, you've heard the concept of covenant before. But just as a reminder, a covenant is an agreement between two parties in which there are conditions, blessings, And curses. In a covenant, it's an agreement between two parties where there are blessings, curses, and conditions. And in historic Reformed theology, theologians have distinguished between two primary covenants in Scripture that God has made with mankind. I was hoping Grant would be here because I knew he would know the answer to this, but I'll ask you guys. What are the two covenants that God has made with man? The two primary covenants. Anybody know? Works and grace. That's right. Works and grace. Good job. So we've got the covenant of works. All right. And hopefully I'll have enough room here. And we've got the covenant of grace. I'm just going to set that off here. So we've got the covenant of works. And the covenant of grace. Now, when we put up here these two covenants of works and grace, do not think Old Testament, New Testament. All right? That is not right. If you think that, you're wrong. We're going to fix that right now. The covenant of works does not mean the Old Testament. All right? Rather, the covenant of works is the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Okay? So this is a covenant made with Adam in the Eden, okay? And the covenant of works that God made with Adam and Eden is called the covenant of works because here's what it was. God said, listen, you will have a life in paradise if you do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and if you are fruitful to multiply and fill the earth, right? So there's the conditions, the commands. They have to do those two things. They can't eat from the tree and they have to be fruitful and multiply, that's the condition. The blessing is they get to live in paradise. The curse is if they don't, then they will die. See, there's the blessing, the curse, and the conditions of the covenant of works. And it's called the covenant of works because Adam and Eve were required to perform these conditions on their own. Right? They didn't have grace to help them. As Augustine said, they were created with the ability to sin or the ability not to sin. Right? They had the freedom to obey God or not to obey God. It's a covenant of works. Man had to fulfill the conditions. That's what they had to do. Right? Now, as you know the story, what happens? Did they fulfill the covenant of works or not? No. No, they didn't fulfill the covenant of works. right? No one would say they did. They did not fulfill the covenant of works. right? And so they reaped upon themselves the curses of the covenant, namely spiritual death and physical death. They reaped upon themselves the curses of the covenant because they didn't fulfill the conditions. That's the covenant of works. Now, right in Genesis 3, right away at the very beginning of Scripture, God establishes another covenant. And this covenant, theologians call the covenant of grace. Now, just FYI, as we go through these, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, you're not going to find these titles in the Scripture, these are theological labels kind of like the word trinity you won't find the word trinity in the bible but you will find the substance of the doctrine in the bible and that's what's going on here so don't be looking for a verse that talks about a covenant of grace this is just a theological label but anyway in Genesis 3 God establishes the covenant of grace with Adam and Eve Uh, this is sort of what you could call the first the first establishment of it and the covenant of grace is established in Genesis 3 when God says hey through the seed of the woman, someone will come, and he will crush the head of the serpent. And there's more we could talk about with how God reveals the covenant of grace to Adam, but that's the gist of it, that there is someone who is going to come, who is going to fulfill the conditions of the covenant. And so throughout the rest of Scripture, we have a progressive unfolding of, of the covenant of grace. You have a reaffirmation of it um, with Noah, the Noahic covenant, and the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. You've got after Noah the covenant made with Abraham. I'm going to need more room here. The covenant with Abraham. We'll talk about that in just a second. You have the covenant with Moses, the Sinaiic covenant it's called because it was given on Mount Sinai. And then you've got the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where in the Davidic covenant is where God promises to David that a descendant shall always sit on David's throne. A descendant of David will always sit on his throne. This is why it was so crazy when Israel was thrown into exile. They were carried off to Babylon, and a, a descendant of David was not on the throne. And Israel was like, wait a second, God, you're not fulfilling your covenant you made with David. You promised to do this. And uh, what actually ended up happening is that David did have a descendant that was on the throne, only it wasn't an earthly throne, it was a heavenly throne, and that descendant is Jesus. Okay, so God did fulfill the covenant. But anyway, these these covenants here, these key covenants throughout the Old Testament... Right, They are part of the covenant of grace, where more and more of the nature of this covenant is revealed. And here's what distinguishes the covenant of grace from the covenant of works, right? As we said earlier, the covenant of works is a covenant where the conditions or the commands that God has given must be fulfilled by man. For Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he had to fulfill the conditions of the covenant of works. It was based on obedience, but in the covenant of grace, the conditions are not fulfilled by us because we can't do it. In the covenant of grace, the conditions of the covenant are fulfilled by God on our behalf. That's why it's called the covenant of grace. Because it's by grace that we are saved, not by works. All right, That's how we fulfill the conditions. It's Jesus who fulfills it. And so really, we could call this the covenant of Jesus' works. And this could be called the covenant of man's works. Because Jesus is the one who fulfills the covenant. He fulfills all the conditions. And here, that truth is being progressively unfolded to a greater and greater degree throughout these sort of what you could call subcategories of the the big covenant of grace. Do you kind of get the big picture here of how this is all unfolding throughout Scripture? All right. So... Getting to our text in Colossians here, you remember the whole reason we're talking about this is because we want to understand how covenant unfolds throughout Scripture because we need to talk about circumcision. And circumcision, as I said before, is a sign of a covenant. Now, a little bit of trivia for you here, you should probably know this, but which of these covenants, of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, or David, which one of them Uh, has circumcision administered in it. Anybody know? Abraham. Abraham, yeah, right. That's right. Because when God made the covenant with Abraham, he said, listen, Abraham, through your offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise. That's the blessing of the covenant. And then God says after that, I think it's in, I don't remember if it's in chapter 15 of Genesis, where God says, and this will be the sign of the covenant. So I'm not making this stuff up when I say circumcision is a sign. It says right there, I think in Genesis 15, this will be the sign of the covenant. You and your household will be circumcised. This is the sign, circumcision. All right? So God institutes circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Now, there's a number of things, as we, I wouldn't have time to do this, but as you go from the various passages in Scripture and put things together, there are a number of things that circumcision was meant to be a sign of. So remember, it's a sign of the covenant, but circumcision in itself, as a visible, tangible thing that we can see or that we can experience, right? as that, it symbolizes certain things. And the first thing that it symbolizes we look at Scripture and sort of put these things together as it symbolizes a cutting off of sin. See, just as the in circumcision that the foreskin is cut away, so also it symbolizes the cutting off of sin. In other words, the person who takes on circumcision is saying, "I am dying to my sin. I am cutting myself off from sin." I am going to be a person dedicated to being in the covenant community of God's people. I cut myself off from the sin. And it also says, if I don't remain in the covenant, may I be cut off from God. All right? So it's, it symbolizes a cutting off, particularly a cutting off from sin. I'm separating myself as a holy person unto God. Okay? Secondly, it symbolized the coming of the Messiah. Symbolize the coming of the Messiah. And how's that? Well, the whole promise of the covenant, the whole promise of the Abrahamic covenant, as well as the Adamic covenant, and all the way through these, the whole promise of the covenant of grace, is that there will be a Messiah who will fulfill the conditions of the covenant because we can't do it. And what God promised to Abraham is that that Messiah... That offspring who will bless the nations is going to come through your descendants. And as Paul points out in Galatians 3, that offspring, that singular offspring that came from Abraham is Jesus. Many of the Jews who interpreted the covenant of Abraham said, Oh, when God said that that Abraham's offspring would bless the nations, that means all of the children of Israel. And there's an extent to where that's true, but Paul says, no, he said that's not primarily what the covenant was about. In Galatians 3, Paul says that offspring is singular, not plural. And that singular offspring is Jesus. And so the covenant said, Jesus is going to come through the line of Abraham and bless the nations. That means that through Abraham reproducing offspring, through reproduction, the Messiah would come. And that's why circumcision was established as a sign of the covenant. Because not only did it symbolize the cutting off of sin and devoting yourself unto God, but it symbolized that through reproduction, the Messiah would come. So it symbolized the coming of the Messiah. And then thirdly, we could say, from the New Testament, and relying wholly on Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 11, I believe, Paul says that circumcision was a sign and seal of righteousness by faith. Now, I didn't make that up. I didn't just get that from the Westminster Confession. Paul says that explicit thing in Romans 4.11, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness by faith. Many have tried to say that circumcision, yes, maybe it sort of symbolized these two things, but circumcision was primarily just something that Israel did as a theocracy. That circumcision is simply something that Israel did because they were of Jewish heritage. That it didn't necessarily have any spiritual significance. It certainly wasn't tied to faith. It certainly wasn't tied to actually being the people of God. It was just about being the nation of Israel. This is, this is what a lot of baptists will make the case for if you hadn't didn't figure that out already but Paul doesn't refer to it as something that is about Israel's theocracy no he teaches that it is it is truly spiritual and it's it's something that has to do with faith circumcision is a sign and seal of righteousness by faith that is you remember how the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness He was justified by faith in the Messiah. Justified by the faith in the promise of the covenant of grace that hadn't been fulfilled yet. He was justified. And circumcision is the sign and seal of believing that promise. Now, that's circumcision. That's what it is in the Old Testament. And what the scripture will often refer to circumcision as the sign of the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant for the most part, refers to all of the covenants here under the covenant of grace from Adam to David, and sometimes it has specific reference to Moses, the Mosaic covenant or the the ceremonial law and the sacrifices and that sort of thing. But the Old Covenant, the sign of the Old Covenant circumcision, primarily has reference to these covenants because there's one more covenant that we need to add at the end here. And that covenant is what we call the New Covenant. And what distinguishes the Old Covenant from the New Covenant is that in the Old Covenant, the Messiah has not come yet. He's promised, he's on his way, everything is being prepared for him, but he hasn't arrived yet. But in the New Covenant, which is the covenant, the part of redemptive history that we are under right now, in the New Covenant, the Messiah has come. And with the coming of the Messiah, there is a change in the outward manifestation of God's people, because you see, in the old covenant, right? um, this is why the old covenant has special reference to the Mosaic covenants, because in the old covenant, you had all of these things going on that we don't do anymore today, right? Offering sacrifices, you know, going to the temple. Um, All of these uh, civil laws of Israel as a theocracy, as a nation devoted to God, those kinds of things don't exist anymore. Why? Because Christ fulfilled them. They were temporary for the period of God's redemptive history before the Messiah came. But now that the Messiah has come, a lot of that stuff has been abolished. Some of it remains, but a lot of it's been abolished. And now there has been a change in the new covenant. And in the new covenant, the outward signs of the covenant have changed. Because where in the Old Covenant, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that sort of initiated you into the church or initiated you into the people of God. Now in the New Covenant, we have a different sign. Baptism. And you see, the scripture is very clear that circumcision with the coming of Christ has been discontinued. And then Christ institutes a new sacrament or a new sign, a sign of the New Covenant. And this sign is baptism. Now you're starting to see where we're going with this as we try to explain Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Baptism here, as we see, the reason why circumcision needed to be replaced with baptism is because circumcision pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah through Abraham's offspring. Remember, that's the whole, the, the cutting of the male reproductive organ symbolize the coming through reproduction of the Messiah. That right here is circumcision pointing forward. Now you have baptism. Jesus has come. A new sign has been administered, and this sign, baptism, is pointing backward to the Messiah. It's pointing back to what the Messiah did in his fulfilling of the conditions of the covenant. And this is why the sign is administered through a washing. This is why the sign is water washing, sprinkling or immersion or whatever mode we want to use. The point is baptism symbolizes a kind of cleansing. And that is precisely what the Messiah did when he was here on earth. He lived the perfect righteous life, fulfilling all the conditions of the law that we couldn't do. And then he died a sacrificial death to pay the sin debt that we couldn't pay. And so baptism then points to that cleansing work the Messiah accomplished while he was on this earth. It points back to him. And so if we wanted to sort of put up here a parallel, we would say here, baptism symbolizes what the Messiah did when he has come, or when he came. That the Messiah has come. Now, as we take a look, now getting back to Colossians here, and we start to fill in the blanks as to how Circumcision and baptism relate. And what Paul is saying here and why he's drawing this close parallel between them, let's take a look at what he says. Verse 11, In Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. All right, there's the spiritual circumcision he's talking about. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of christ now that statement there the circumcision of christ i think is referring to baptism because when when you have that phrase circumcision of christ what it's saying is this this is the circumcision that christ has administered now in the new covenant or the equivalent of circumcision in the new covenant so whereas in the old covenant you have circumcision pointing to christ Here in the New Covenant, you have Christ's new version of circumcision, namely baptism. And the reason why I think that is because, look at the part right before it, you put off the body of the flesh by means of the circumcision of Christ. What does it mean to put off the body of the flesh? That's uh, Calvin. uh, I default to Calvin on a lot of stuff, but Calvin says, That This portion right here, and I think you saw it on this, when he says putting off the body of the flesh, what Paul means is he's saying that we're putting off sin. We are dying to sin. We are, if you will, cutting off sin from us. We put aside the body of flesh. We put aside the collection of all of the sin that is within us. Set it aside. We renounce it. Not that we lose it. Right? We're still imperfect. We still fight with the sin nature and so on. But we renounce it. We renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways. We set aside the body of, of the flesh. How do we do that? By means of the circumcision of Christ. And what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about dying to sin. If you were to look at Romans 6, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to look at Romans 6, in ver- I think it's verse 4, Paul says, Therefore... We have been buried with Christ through baptism into death. We've been buried with Christ through baptism into death. That is, that baptism symbolizes a dying to sin. That our sin is buried with Christ, that it's set aside, it is cut off from us and laid on Him. And do you see how that's a parallel with circumcision? That's exactly what circumcision symbolized a cutting off of sin from us. And so baptism here symbolizes that same thing. Cutting off of sin. And I mean, if you want, you could say just dying to sin. That's the language that Paul uses. Dying to sin. We set aside the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We die to sin by baptism. That's what it symbolizes. A cutting off of sin, And then Paul says in verse 12, we do this having been buried with him in baptism. There's that symbolism of death and burial, that our sin was, was uh, died and buried with Christ, as he says in Romans 6. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That is just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God, so baptism symbolizes that we are raised from the dead unto new life. And that's the work of the Messiah. That's the work of the Messiah. The Messiah's job is to be the life giver, the one who takes us from our dead state where we can't fulfill the conditions of the covenant and brings us to life by fulfilling the conditions of the covenant for us. So for Paul here, baptism symbolizes dying to sin, And being raised again unto new life. And guess what? This is exactly what Paul says in Romans six. Verse four Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. There's that theme again of cutting off sin, dying to sin, laying it on Christ, and being renewed unto new spiritual life death and resurrection. That is how Paul is describing baptism here. Now, notice what he says, though, in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. We can't miss that Just tiny little two words, through faith. Paul is not teaching here that if you just get dunked underwater, that means you really have died to sin and been risen to life. Baptism is not an automatic regeneration where we just dunk people in water or sprinkle water on them or whatever we want to use, and then suddenly they're saved. That's not what he's saying. But he's placing an emphasis here. He's saying, you died a sin, and you're raised with him through faith. And this is why historically, say Calvin in his institutes, um, book 4, chapter 14, he's going to say that The sacraments, and he's talking about baptism, but it applies to the Lord's Supper too. But the sacraments do not do anything. They do not affect the blessings that they promise. They do not affect any kind of dying to sin or any kind of being raised at all without faith. You have to come to the sacraments with faith in Christ. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. You'll see this kind of thing in the Westminster Confession. Without faith, the sacraments give no blessing. No blessing. And that's another point that we need to recognize here is that there is blessing in the sacraments. They're not just mere symbols. They're not just there to be nice little things that we can see, although they are that— but there actually is a spiritual blessing that happens in the sacraments. Calvin talks about this a lot in the Institutes, and I really like the way that he puts it and how he sort of draws upon the language here. The way that that Calvin talks about the sacraments or in terms of the spiritual blessing that they offer is he says the sacraments are not going to give you justifying grace. They're a means of grace. They're not going to give you justifying grace, but what they are going to do is they work sanctifying grace. And what that means is this, that the sacraments, when they're administered, both to the person who is receiving it, and to the people who are watching it, the church, the sacraments are nourishing, cherishing, and supporting faith, according to Calvin. They're nourishing and cherishing and supporting it. That is, when the sacraments are administered, the Spirit is working to work in us a stronger faith. They're not saving us. They're They're not giving us faith. But they're strengthening the faith that we have when we come to them. And when we come to the sacraments with faith, according to Paul here, we are buried, our our sins are buried with him. They're cut off. And we are raised with him unto new life. That's why I love what Paul talks about in Romans 6. As I've quoted before, I'll quote it again. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's strong language here. It's not just a symbol. There's a spiritual work going on. But always and in every way must be accompanied with true faith in Christ. Otherwise, no blessing is offered. And that is, as we see this, this dying to sin, and this raising unto new life, that is the promise of the covenant of grace. Because as human beings, by nature, we are sinners, right? We all know that. As human beings, by nature, we are sinners. As a result of Adam and Eve failing to fulfill the covenant of works, they plunged the rest of humanity into sin. But God didn't leave us there. He established a second covenant. And he said, hey, guess what? The conditions of this covenant, you need to fulfill the law. And you need to believe and you need to be faithful to me. But guess what? I'm going to accomplish those conditions for you. I'm going to send a Messiah, as I promise in all of these covenants here. I'm going to send a Messiah. He will eventually come. He will live the perfect life you were supposed to. And he will pay for the sin that you shouldn't have done in the first place. He will make you righteous, not because you are righteous, but because he will give you his righteousness so you can be declared holy and blameless and justified before me. That's the message of the covenant of grace. It is all grace. We get no credit. And in baptism, we see this marvelously, marvelously displayed. And as Paul says, that it symbolizes us dying to sin laying that sin on Christ, renouncing that sin, striving for sanctification, and being raised to new life as we are purified and washed by the waters of the blood of Jesus in his work on the cross, fulfilling the conditions of the covenant of grace. That's the message of Paul here. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for instituting uh, sacraments in your church. Lord, we thank you for um, the sacrament, especially this morning, the sacrament of baptism. And Lord, we thank you um, for these great texts that we have in Scripture that tell us what the promises that you make in a visible form. Oh, Lord, as, as your servant Calvin said, I mean, we're humans, we are weak, and you have given us sacraments To help us in our weakness, to give us a visible means to see your gospel. It's a visible word. And Lord, we thank you that as as a baptism is performed and we see the sprinkling of the water on the child or the adult or whatever the case may be, Lord, we pray that you would work in us a better knowledge of what that baptism symbolizes. That we would see that wonderful washing and that cleansing that you accomplish for us in your work here on earth, in your perfect life, and in your perfect death. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity as we seek to continue to understand your scriptures, and prepare us now to hear the preaching of your word from our pastor this morning in the service. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.